Check my statistics If we talking about go, You gotta give me a mention This is rational hour If we being realistic This is rational They said I couldn't do it But I did it work Ethic like mom But you know that boy is a problem Tell me when to get him Then I got him This is rational hour I'm just keeping it a honey This is rational hour Everything you doing I done done it Welcome to the Rational Hour with Ryan, where we talk sports. I have a very, very special guest in the building, Mr. Bob Kendricks. How you doing, sir? Ryan, I'm good, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Now, now, Mr. Kendricks, let's just start. I mean, your parents, Roger and Claire Pearl Kendrick, uh, raised you in Crawfordville, Georgia. Yeah. Um, you're in the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, what was life for like you growing up? It, it was pretty carefree. I mean, Crawfordville, Georgia is a town of 500 people. Crawfordville, Georgia is east of Atlanta, about 80 miles east of Atlanta, 50 miles west of Augusta, and as I mentioned, all of 500 people. So it's a very rural area, but life was generally very carefree. Uh, you kind of roamed around and went anywhere, and you know everybody in the town had jurisdiction over you, so you weren't going to get in any trouble. You know, if you walk by Miss Jones' yard and you didn't speak, by the time you got home, your mother already knew. And she's going to ask you why you didn't speak to Miss Jones. So it was that kind of, you know, very nurturing environment. You don't realize that you don't have a whole lot until you leave because everybody else had the same thing that, that we had, nothing. And then when you leave and you come out into the world, you realize, that my parents did a pretty good job of shielding me from the fact that we were poor. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But you know what? The parents I, I are so important. I wouldn't change. I wouldn't change that small town upbringing for anything in the world, man. And, you know, it humbles you. It makes you appreciate things that maybe other people take for granted. And uh, you know, it was just a great environment to grow up in. Now, Mr. Crawford, you leave Crawfordville. And you get a basketball scholarship yeah. to Park University uh, in 1980. Uh, what was that like, leaving home and, and going over venture off into Kansas City? Yeah, well, I was initially going to Howard University. And okay. I was going to Howard University from the time I was maybe 10, 11 years old. I had a brother that lived in D.C., and I would go visit him every summer. And so that is how I got introduced to Howard. And so from that time, you know, I always knew that I was going to Howard University. And I had gotten accepted to attend Howard University, but they wanted me to walk on for basketball. They didn't have any money for me. They wanted me to walk on for basketball, which I was actually prepared to do. And then in the 13th hour, I get a letter from Park College, now Park University, that says, we want you to come play basketball for us. And so I forgot about Howard University and I headed to the Midwest, didn't know a soul in this area, sight unseen, and I've been out in this neck of the woods ever since. And 
so you know it's really interesting that I left Crawfordville chasing a basketball and now I make my living in baseball albeit baseball history but I really enjoyed my experience at Park College and it was literally a melting pot there were students from all over the world and it was such a great experience uh, although Parkville was very small so it wasn't a culture shock from the standpoint that the size of the town was very very similar to growing up in Crawfordville is just the fact that you had such a wide diversity of people there. And, and so that made the educational process, I think, even meaningful. You learn how to relate to people who don't look like you. And, and uh, I think that's really important as you get ready to move out into the world. And so, yeah, it was a great experience. I played for about two years and I broke my foot and I stopped and just concentrated on my studies and just tried to figure out what my career path was going to be. Basketball was your first love or baseball was always kind of your first love or was it both? Well, I, I, we loved all sports. You know, I think we, as kids, we grew up and you, you played whatever was in season. But because my town was so small, basketball and track were the only sports that were available to us in high school. And I think anybody who knows me understands that I don't believe in running for the sake of running. So if there's not a ball involved, I'm not doing any running. So I went to basketball because track had no shot for me. And, and so, uh, and I was fortunate enough, you know, I thought I was probably better than what I actually was. And, and of course, I've gotten better and better with time. The older I get, Ryan, the better I get. And so, <laughs> and so, but I've always loved baseball. I've been a baseball fan since I was probably four or five years old when I got introduced to the game and I taught myself how to read a box score out of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And, uh, you know, so baseball, we played baseball on the sand lot and you know, the late great Henry Aaron was my all-time favorite baseball player, mm. my childhood idol. Right. So anytime we were on the sand lot, I wanted to be Henry Aaron. And, and so, but yeah, so baseball has always played a very important role in my life. My, I'm the youngest of six boys and, and they're all older, and so they all love the game. A father loved the game. So I think naturally you gravitate to what they are involved in, and I wanted to be involved in it as well. Okay. The discussion today with baseball is that the, the lower communities aren't being able to afford to play baseball. It seems that, that in the lower poverty communities that the baseball is being like the abolished from the sport. It seems football and basketball are being pushed towards most uh, African-American families. Why do you think that is? And do you think that is holding true or where do you, where do you stand with that? Well, you know, I'm the eternal optimist. I, I believe that we will come back to this game. And, and I think slowly but surely the numbers are starting to reverse themselves. Now, again, Football and basketball have quite simply outmarketed baseball. These are star-driven sports and the lure of instant wealth that comes along with those sports certainly appeals to a lot of young people and there's a cool factor associated with the game. I tell people all the time, the thing that we love about baseball is this tradition. The thing that has hurt baseball is this tradition. It has got to get better at marketing its stars. And Major League Baseball could absolutely take a page out of the Negro Leagues because the Negro Leagues were never afraid to market its stars. It was a star-driven league as well. And so 
you would see Satchel Paige and the Kansas City Monarchs, Oscar Charleston and the Indianapolis ABCs. Yeah, Rube Foster's Chicago American Giants. And, and so star power was always prevalent as it related to the Negro Leagues. We've got to do a better job at, at that. But we've also got to bridge the financial gap that, had, that is now preventing a lot of kids, particularly urban kids, from playing this game. Our game went from being a blue-collar sport to essentially a country club sport now because it's played solely organized. And these leagues are exorbitant. And the equipment is tremendously expensive. The shoes, which you can only wear to play baseball. Unlike basketball, you buy a basketball sneak, you can play, you can wear them to school, you can do other things in them. But you buy a pair of baseball cleats, you're only playing baseball now. And, and so these things have kind of priced out a lot of urban kids. And so part of our job, even as a cultural institution, is to number one, make sure that urban kids understand their place in this sport. As black folks, we have a tremendous legacy in this game. And so what I hope happens when kids walk into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is that they see themselves in their full glory playing this game. They see people who look just like them who played this game as well as anyone ever played this game. But Ryan, not only did they play the game, they owned teams. They were managers and coaches and traveling secretaries and team physicians. They were fulfilling every role that you could feel within the business of the game of baseball. And then you look at the stands and you see all these beautiful black folks dressed to the nines, looking good, going to those games. So not only did we play the game, we also attended those games. So baseball has always had a prominent place in the African-American community. And somewhere along the line, we started to detach ourselves from the game and perhaps Major League Baseball detached itself from the black community. And, and so there, there has been a bit of a schism there and, and we're working diligently. The, th the great thing about it is that Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball's Players Association, they understand that this is an issue and, and they're putting in measures to try and resolve this and, and again, that's why I have every confidence that we're going to see this pendulum shift back and that you're going to see more black folks moving into the major leagues. The minor leagues are starting to become more populated. And, and again, you can pretty much predict when these players will get to the majors. You know, now there's nothing, there's nothing exponential about baseball. It is a slow process. You know, and again, I think the minor leagues and having to go through the minor leagues is not attractive to a lot of kids either. But once you get to the show, you know, once you get there, you know, this is one of the best jobs you could ever have and amongst right. all the sports. You know, so unless you're playing quarterback in the NFL, now, man, you're, you're, you know, the baseball provides a tremendous pathway uh, to a lucrative future if you're good enough to play this game. But we also want them to be prepared to compete for other jobs within the game that a lot of times our kids are not even made aware of. And so the museum is working diligently to expose our children. We want them to fall in love with this game. We want them to identify with this game, grow in this game, be nurtured in this game. And if their talents take them uh, or afford them the opportunity to win a college scholarship or, you know, as we're talking, get an opportunity to make it to the show, man, that would be great. 
Yeah, I grew up just a big fan of the game. I mean, I saw, you know, the 86 uh, Mets and the 88 Dodgers. Uh, just those teams I just fell in love with. And my neighbor actually was cousins with Ozzie Smith. So when the Cardinals came to town, um, her husband would take a couple of locals. Uh, kids around the neighborhood to the game you know we were all in the boy scouts it was a big thing and i just slowly slowly it's kind of the love a lot of my buddies you know you know and the lower generation as well they don't talk baseball as much no uh, as as we used to and i just I, one thing i found mr kendall was interesting that one of the big little league tournaments the cooperstown uh, dreams tournament in in florida the 2021 registration fee um is thirteen hundred dollars per that's player that's what I'm I was saying. Like, wow yeah that's, that's a lot of money absolutely and, and even more so ryan if you're going to compete at that level now you've got to have a pitching coach you got to have a hitting coach mm-hmm. you know and so it makes it financially just almost impossible for urban kids to play and, and you don't have the fields in the urban core. You know, we just built right behind the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum a beautiful urban youth baseball academy. Oh. And, and this is a joint venture that we just are very proud to be a part of, affiliated with, with Major League Baseball and the Players Association, the city of Kansas City, the state of Missouri, um, the RBI program, Boys and Girls Club of, of Kansas City. All of us collaborating on this wonderful facility that does indeed bridge that economic gap. And keep yeah, I know. Giving um, uh, to some great training, and they don't have to worry about cost. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, because Daryl Miller, yes. I know, was doing some also. He uh-huh. had the one at, at Compton yeah. College, uh, now El Camino yeah. College. Well, that first one um, was in Compton. The first yeah, one was in yeah. Compton, and, and we replicated that same model in Kansas City. And, and it's basically the same thing that baseball had been doing for years in Spanish-speaking countries and, and building these academies and grooming ball players and investing in, in those athletes in those other countries. And now we're seeing that happen here. And I had the opportunity to go down to Vero Beach where they were doing a, an elite camp, Major League Baseball and the Players Association for, for Black and, and Hispanic kids. And man, I can tell you now, there's some talent coming down the pipeline, you know. But oh, you know, we, you know, we're a microwave society. We want mm-hmm. everything to happen instantaneous. And, and again, there's nothing instant about baseball. So mm-hmm. patience is not one of the things that we're very good at, uh, particularly today. But mm-hmm. we're going to have to be patient. And if we're patient, we'll see the tide turn. We'll start to see. There are a lot of black kids playing the game now. Now we've got to get them seen, as I said, so that they compete for these scholarships. And, and then hopefully scouts will see them and, and they'll have an opportunity to get drafted. And, and so, but we don't want them to lose that love. So they're playing. We got to keep them playing. And then we got to make sure that there is this possibility and hope for reward at the end if their talents so dictate. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a process. I, I, I agree with you. Mr. Kendricks, I think it is will eventually this next 10 years or so, you'll see the percentage go up and up. It was pretty bad in the early 2000s. And I think the MLB, uh, Manford and, and Selig, you know, he actually implemented a rule in 99 where teams were required to identify and interview at least one minority yeah. candidate for a leadership position. I think that helped 
front office execs of color. Mm-hmm. We've right. got more GMs of color who are also uh-huh. helping make some of these decisions. Uh, right. And, and so, you know, so we still got some work to do along those lines, and and I and that is what makes me think about the Negro Leagues when you had all of these talented baseball minds that didn't get the opportunity to transition into Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball essentially focused on the field. So you think about the fact that Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in 1947. Well, Major League Baseball doesn't get his first black coach until 15 years later with Buck O'Neill with the Chicago Cubs in 1962. You don't get your first black manager until 1975 and your first black GM later than that. And, And so as Buck would say when he became baseball's first black coach, he said, yeah, I was proud of my accomplishment, but I couldn't stick out my chest because I knew all of these other great baseball minds who were more than capable of waving a guy home. And and they never got those opportunities. And and so we've been been kind of running uphill as as you look at the hierarchy in baseball since the the end of the Negro Leagues. And, And it's still something that we're going to have to continue to push and you know and, and push that agenda in hopes that we can prepare young black minds to compete for these jobs and you know that so oftentimes have not been available. Favorite uh, general manager right now, Kenny Williams. Well, he was general manager. Yeah. It's it's it was he was I thought one of the best, and I think he would help he helped open the door in the front office positions, where I think MLB is starting to embrace that diversity in the front office. There were like eight. GM and president of baseball operation jobs in 2020. Uh, Ken Williams was hired in t- October of 2000, I believe. I believe so. And it's, it's, it's been about two decades, and there's been about three GM jobs filled. I know Tony Regans with the Angels was one, uh-huh. and yep. Michael Hill with the. Uh, it used to be with Florida. Florida and Dave Stewart, I believe. I don't know if he's still with Arizona he's, or not, but those not were the three. Arizona anymore, and, and Michael, of course. Is- mm. It's not with the Marlins, and, and every one of those guys that you mentioned, I, I, I know them personally. And, and Kenny, Kenny is the first to bring their entire team to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. When the wow. White Sox won the World Series in 2005, we honored Kenny with the Rube Foster Executive of the Year Award. And when he accepted the award, he looked out in the audience at the late, great Buck O'Neill. And he told Buck when the White Sox came back to town the next year, he was bringing the entire team and he kept his promise. And they were the first and only team to bring all of their players. And and I'm sure there were some guys who probably didn't want to go, you know, for their free time. They didn't want to necessarily give up their free time. But once they got there, they were blown away, you know. And as as those who make their living in this game, it's hard not to be blown away by just the sheer love of the game that the players in the Negro Leagues had. And that's the bond that they share. That's where they can identify is love of the game. Because you had to love it to endure the things that they had to endure. And that comes across beautifully when you walk through the museum. Yet you also are introduced to these amazingly talented 
athletes who were as good as anyone who ever played this game. Um, one stat that you, you mentioned in a, in a show that I was listening to was in baseball from 1949 to 1959. Nine of 11 of the National League MVPs were stars in the Negro yes. League. That just spoke volumes to me well, when I it, heard that. I had it, to rewind it a couple it's of times. a great indication of the immediate impact that the Negro Leagues had on Major League Baseball. It was different in the American League because the American League was so slow to sign black ball players. And honestly, they shied away from superstar black ball players. And, and so you don't get your first MVP in the American League until Elston Howard with the New York Yankees. And, and so, but the American League really did not want black ball players. Uh, they were so reluctant. And as a result, the National League started dominating all-star games and the pendulum of power started to shift to the National League. Uh, I remember something that the late, great Bob Gibson said uh, when he got to the major leagues. He thought that the American League was a place where old ball players went to die, you know, and so it was just different. And, and so Boston was the last team to integrate in 1959, and really they didn't want to. They didn't want to sign a black player, but by that time they felt they almost had to sign one because everybody else had one now. And they signed Elijah Pumpsy Green, and Mr. Green was a two-time All-Star. But quite frankly, Boston could have had that pick of the litter of star talent. You know, they turned down players like Willie Mays and Henry Aaron, Ernie Banks, you know, basically saying that they weren't good enough. Now, I don't know if it was just bad information from the scout or the organization had basically said, no, we're not signing any. And, and so I have no idea. But, you know, they could have absolutely had that pick of the litter of great black talent and, and they refused to sign it. Now, speaking of signing talent, your buddy Buck O'Neill uh, was the first, like you said, black uh coach in the Major League Baseball. He's a scout also, and he, he signed his first player was, I believe, Ernie yeah, Banks. How instrumental was yeah, that? That's not bad when, you're, when, you're, when your first one is Ernie Banks. <laughs> right. And it ain't too bad when your second one is Lou Brock. He signed Ernie Banks, he signed Lou Brock, he signed Lee Arthur Smith, so he has three Hall of Famers. He also signed Joe Carter, and, and, and I'm still hopeful that Joe Carter will eventually make his way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh -huh, he but he said. also signed Oscar Gamble, uh, George Altman. All, George Altman played for Buck here in, with the Kansas City Monarchs. And so Buck always had a great eye for talent. And, you know, to have three Hall of Famers on your resume is pretty impressive. And Ernie, of course, played here for the Kansas City Monarchs. And Ernie was essentially discovered by two Negro League players, Bill Blair, the late great Skinny Leg, Bill Skinny Legs Blair, who lived in Dallas, and then Cool Papa Bell, who was managing what they call the Junior Monarchs. And they're playing in Dallas when they see Ernie Banks. And Cool Papa Bell basically calls Buck and says, hey, we got one here that you need to sign. Well, if Cool Papa Bell recommends you, Buck signed, you know, Buck, Buck ain't questioning what Cool Papa is saying. And so they, they bring Ernie to Kansas City. And, of course, Ernie goes on to become the first black player with the Chicago Cubs. But, yeah, no, he played here for the for the Kansas City Monarchs. As a matter of fact, he and the great Elston Howard were roommates uh, here for the win. They both were playing here for the Kansas City Monarchs. Now, I've heard you say 
in the past that people will come up to you sometime and say, was the Negro League really that good? And how do you respond As to that? Bunk would say, they were better than that. You know, there is this mindset that if it didn't happen in the major leagues, then it didn't happen. And, and so mm-hmm. people are always somewhat skeptical about the talent in the Negro League. But we've already talked about, you know, nine of 11 National League MVPs were former Negro League stars. Mm-hmm. And as I tell people all the time, Jackie Robinson braced the color barrier in 1947. Well, they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. There was this tremendous talent that was there well before 1947. And these leagues wouldn't take a backseat to any league, Ryan. And the only difference between the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball was money. Major League Baseball had more money. They had their own stadiums. But outside of that, if we're looking purely from a talent standpoint, no. Now, because you had both the best black and Hispanic talent playing in the Negro Leagues. Now, their roster sizes weren't yeah. as large as Major League Baseball, but that's a money thing. And, and so, but outside of that, man, that is, a, that is really it. And so when I hear someone who I had the utmost respect for, the late, great Monty Irvin. Monty Irvin could have been the, the, the guy who breaks the color barrier. As a matter of fact, he was the Negro League's owner's choice. If anyone was going to break the color barrier, they believed that it should be Monty Irvin. Monty Irvin was a superstar in the Negro Leagues. Nothing that Monty Irvin could not do. And when Monty finally gets to the major leagues, he's 30 years old. And he still has a great career at age 30. But when I hear him, and I got to know him extremely well, and when I hear him say that I played with Willie Mays, and he did. He played with Willie. He mentored Willie. Uh, He was like a father figure to Willie Mays. And they were together with the New York Giants. And I played against Henry Aaron. And neither of them are Josh Gibson. It just makes you wonder, damn, how good was Josh Gibson? You know, because uh, it's hard right. to believe that someone was better than Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. Because before Mr. Aaron died, they were the two greatest living major leaguers at that time. And and here he is saying Gibson was even better. And then I hear my friend Buck O'Neill say that Oscar Charleston was Willie Mays before we ever knew who Willie Mays was. You know, and then you have a player like Hilton Smith, who a lot of people don't know. But Hilton Smith won 20 games or more 12 consecutive years, including going 10-1 and against Major League All-Stars. And, you know, so if this league was chalk-filled with tremendous talent. Yeah, no, yeah, no, but, you know, yeah. people are always skeptical because, again, if it didn't happen in the Major League, in them, it didn't happen. Yeah. But we're here to tell you that it did happen. Right. And that's that's the thing that is just the history of the game is so rich with the Negro League. Um, I always hear about Josh Gibson and, and Satchel Page. Satchel Page, they say, was an unbelievable, amazing pitcher, man. And he was 20, 232 wins, 89 losses, 72% yeah, yeah, that, win percentage. One year. You know, I'm telling you now, it uh-huh, is right. far more than 232. Uh, 
you know, you look at Ryan, what Satchel did when he gets to the major leagues, his rookie year. Now, he is believed to be 42 years old at that time. If you believe that he was born in wow. 1906, which I absolutely do not believe. I'm telling you, the man that died here in mm. 1982, he had seen 76 a long time ago. But he was believed to be 46, mm. years, 42 years old when he gets to Cleveland in 1948 as a rookie. And he goes 6-1 and one with a 2.4 ERA at an ungodly age for a pitcher. The runs that he gave up that year, that season, he gave them up coming out of the bullpen. When the old man got his legs underneath him, he was lights out. I just posted something on Twitter here recently. His his first three starts for Cleveland drew over 200,000 fans. Everybody wanted to see the old man pitch. And so his first start, he beats the Washington Senators 5-3. It was the first time that Satchel had been a little shaky, didn't have his control. But as he said, he was he had a little arm soreness, I mean leg soreness, and so he didn't have his control. Well, his next start is in Comiskey. He shuts out the White Sox 5 to nothing. They got 50-plus thousand in the ballpark. They had to turn away another 12,000 who could not get in. Everybody wanted to see the old man. And then they come back to Cleveland. Now, Cleveland had this huge ballpark, old municipal stadium. Ryan, they got 78,000 people in the ballpark. At that time, it set an all-time night game record. He shuts out the White Sox again, a one nothing gym, gave up three hits. Nobody got past second base. Uh, you know, so now the old man is off and running. Well, Cleveland wins the game, wins the pennant that year by uh, like a single game. And then they go on to win the World Series. They don't win that pennant without Satchel Paige. And, and, and so you can only imagine what he must have been like in his prime. We, you can only wonder just how good he really was. And, and those who got to see him all say the best that ever did this. Uh, Satchel versus Page uh, versus Josh Gibson. What were those matchups? You know that 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 is mm-hmm. star power at its best. And, and of course, everybody knows. Well, I won't say everybody knows, but the great World Series story that the late great Buck O'Neill always told about an epic showdown between those two. See, they've been teammates uh, with the uh, Homestead Great mm-hmm. Pittsburgh Crawfords, and, and so. And in 1942, they're battling and facing one another in the World Series. And the story has it that, as Buck would tell, that Satchel intentionally walked the bases loaded to face Josh and and struck him out on three pitches after telling him what he was going to throw him. But then again, the very next year, Buck said they're playing in Yankee Stadium. And he says that Satchel tried to get a fastball past Gibson. He said, Josh hit the ball so hard. You know how the pitcher goes through his follow through? And, and said the ball went right over the top of Satchel's cap on a rope into Monument Garden at Yankee Stadium. And so as Josh is circling the bases, Satchel never comes up. He's still down in his follow through. 
and he looks over at first base where Buck O'Neill is playing first base and his nickname for Buck famously was Nancy. He looks over, he says, Nancy. <laughs> Buck said, what's that, Satchel? He said, a fella could get killed out here. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That is classic. Wow, man. It don't get better than that. Yeah, I mean, Josh Gibson, I mean, there's so many urban legend stories with this man. It's, I mean, I've heard, you know, people say he was Bo Jackson as a catcher. I mean, his size and that physique, that strength, that just country strong, you know, as, as my father would say. Babe Ruth for white baseball was Paul Bunyan, you know, in terms of legend and lore. Mm-hmm. Josh Gibson for black mm-hmm. baseball was John Henry, a hammering man, you know? And, and, and so there is this myth and legend and lore, and he does appear to be larger than life because in many ways he was larger than life. And, and I don't ever want that mystique to go away. You know, as we start to focus now on stats and all these things that are, as they're going to be integrated into Major League Baseball, I don't want us to lose the stories. The stories are still essential. Right. And, and, yeah, and I hope yeah, that they, people will continue to tell these stories, you know, long after I'm done doing it. Tremendous in its own right. And when you tell people that, they're always skeptical. But when I tell them that Mickey Mantle hit one that would have gone out had it not hit the light statue, they, they believe that. Well, mm-hmm. no, if Mickey Mantle can hit one that uh-huh. would have gone out, why couldn't Josh hit one completely out? Man, did you look at the speak of Josh Gibson? You oh, know what I'm saying? But as incredible as incredible. Right, as right, ball, yeah. I think even more incredible yeah, right, and is he they, hit a ball in the right field upper deck at Yankee Stadium one-handed. He was food on a changeup and reached wow. out and hit it one-handed into the upper deck of Yankee Stadium. And, and they say as he was circling the bases, he was just giggling because he was that kind of guy we talked about earlier that was just strong. He was so strong that I don't even know if he realizes how strong he really was. And, and he was the kind of guy that could just poke you in the arm and it hurt, you know, but he didn't realize he had hurt you, you know, that yeah, yeah. kind of strength. And he was a jovial, jolly giant of a man. He really was. Yeah, they said he was built around what six one two twenty five. Yeah, you know, big powerful yeah, forearms, yeah. big yeah. thighs, and great eyes. Buck O'Neill would describe him in this fashion: that he had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth mm. rolled into one dynamic package. Wow. Yeah, and and Satchel Page was yeah, more of a basketball six type four, build. Where he's long, like long he's like six four, six three. Fingers, uh, man, but there was some magic in that arm. The ball got on plate in a hurry when yeah. he was in his prime. Now as he got, you know, as he gets to the major leagues, he couldn't throw it as hard as he once did. They had clocked him at one hundred and five when he was playing in the Negro League. Uh, but by the time he gets to the major leagues, with all the games mm. under his belt. He had become very crafty. He knew how to pitch. He didn't have to overpower you anymore. Uh, as Satchel said, he could outcute you. <laughs> you know. He... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they said he had a. Uh, it was 
was a story where he would put the yes. catcher would put a, a gum wrapper on the plate he and he could hit it off right the the see that's the thing that separated Satchel from all Georgia. the other guys who threw hard a lot of guys who throw hard they don't know where it's going Satchel knew exactly where it was going Satchel combined mm. 105 with pinpoint control and so yes the catcher would he'd have the catcher sit a, a stick of foil chewing gum wrapper on top of home plate and wherever the catcher moved the chewing gum wrapper satchel right over the top of that chewing gum wrapper and as satchel would say ryan he'd work both corners of that chewing gum wrapper you know his control was impeccable and he never lost his control he was always yes. able to spot the ball change speeds so he was able to keep these guys off balance and get guys out at an ungodly age for a pitcher unbelievable yeah um that's that's just when you have that type of command and control and you have the velocity <laughs> on top of it well it is it's, yeah it's, that's it's that's a scary like combination now you guys at your museum yes. have barrier breakers where you kind of explain the gaps in the history books can you talk about that a little yeah, bit and exactly what it details an exhibition called barrier breakers and Barrier Breakers chronicles all the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers from Jackie Robinson joining the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947 through, as we mentioned earlier, Elijah Pumsey Green completing the integration cycle with the Boston Red Sox 12 years later in 1959. It took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player. And so, as we so typically do in our society, we always celebrate the first. We rarely ever remember the second. You know, Larry Doby would integrate the American League literally just a few weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier with Brooklyn, and he's almost an afterthought. It's only been over the last decade that people have finally started to pay rightful tribute to the pioneering role of Larry Doby integrating the American League with Cleveland in 1947. Even little known is the fact that there were actually five guys who go up in 1947. Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead. And then Dan Bankhead is the answer to another trivia question. Who was the first black pitcher in Major League Baseball? Most just naturally assumed that it was Satchel. Well, Satchel didn't get there until a year later. It was Dan Bankhead with the Los Angeles, well, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he joined Jackie with the Brooklyn Dodgers that same season. And so we know very little about these guys. And Hank Thompson owns the distinction of breaking the color barrier on two major league teams, the St. Louis Browns and the New York Giants. He is with the New York Giants. He takes the field before both Monty Irvin and Willie Mays. Now, granted, Hank and Monty take the field the same day. So in Barrier Breaker, we recognize both of them for their pioneering roles. And he, Hank Thompson, Monty Irvin, and Willie Mays would form the Majors' first all-black outfield. And so this exhibit basically celebrates all of them because they do deserve to be more than just a footnote in baseball and American history. The exhibit also kind of brings light, shines light, I should say, 
to what really set the stage for integration in our sport. And if we were going to point to any one single event, World War II. World War II, because you had this strong sentiment of these, I guess you would even say the irony, of these young black soldiers dying, fighting the same racism in another country that we were being asked to accept here at home. And that led to the sentiment of if they can die fighting for their country, they ought to be able to play baseball in this country. And that led to Branch Rickey finally making the bold move to go sign Jackie Robinson away from the great Kansas City Monarchs. Jackie plays here in 1945, which again, a lot of people don't realize that. They think Jackie just walked out of nowhere and started playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, his real rookie season was here in Kansas City in 1945. And by the end of the 45 season, the Dodgers had signed him away and he had moved into the Dodgers organization and uh, minor league organization in Montreal in 1946. And then, of course, makes that walk on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers on April 15, 1947, forever changing the game of baseball, but more importantly, forever changing this country. And, and so all of this is embodied and chronicled it beautifully inside our new exhibition called Barrier Breakers. We're also creating a traveling version of this exhibit. So as we start to move out of this pandemic, we'll be able to get this traveling exhibit on the road. It is one of, it will be our number seven traveling exhibition, national traveling exhibition. And we're excited to, to take this story on the road as well. Yeah, it's uh, I think that's a very fascinating thing, and it kind of just to pay the homage of the, like you said, a lot of people don't remember the second, <laughs> and let alone the fourteenth or twelfth. Yeah, uh, you say Larry Doby, and people don't and realize Larry, he was number two. And Larry, you know, Doby, after Larry Doby Jackie, went through yeah, and some may even argue more than Jackie because he was playing in Cleveland. You know, Brooklyn was a major urban center, wow. and the national media is following mm. Jackie. Nobody's really paying Larry mm. Doby any attention. Uh, and, and so, and Larry Doby was 23 years old. He was mm. just a baby, you know, thrown into, as I say, a powder keg of racism. Mm. And he, yet he handled it with the same grace, class, and dignity wow. that Jackie. And Larry Doby never played a day in the minor leagues. He went straight from the Newark Eagles over to Cleveland. But yeah, there was no getting ready. You know, come there. Wow. Yeah, that's that. I didn't know that. That's 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 amazing. That, yeah, I mean, those are totally two different yeah, areas. No, it, so it I can imagine what he know, went through. It was uh, grueling for him, you know. But he, but he still handled it with that again, that same grace, yeah. class, and dignity that Jackie demonstrated as well. You know, I can't even fathom what it must have been like for Jackie and Larry and the other ball players. Because I can tell you, it didn't get any easier for Pumpsy Green in 1959 in Boston than it did for Jackie when he joined Brooklyn. And the moxie, the fortitude that they had to demonstrate in order to play this game with that kind of social pressure uh, on their backs. And, and so, yeah, no, they should always be celebrated. And that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of celebration, I know last year was the 100-year anniversary of the Negro League, 
and you guys had a special yeah. homage of the tipping of your cap by for for the presidents. What did that mean to you, and how 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 much did that mean to you, just from your standpoint yeah, well, of being you know, it was a crazy the president of the I museum? Had. And, and since it worked, it was a great idea. Now, if it hadn't worked, it wouldn't have been my idea. But <laughs> it was an idea that was born more out of necessity than anything else. We were originally, Ryan, going to do this Tip Your Cap campaign in stadium with Major League teams, players, and fans. And then the pandemic struck. And that date was going to be June 27th when we were going to do this salute. All 30 major league teams for the first time ever was going to honor the Negro Leagues. They were going to wear our commemorative 100th anniversary patch. And then in Sarah's special ceremony, everybody was going to stand and tip their cap to the Negro Leagues. Well, after the pandemic came and hit us, and it was so much uncertainty, not, not only when baseball was going to come back, it was if baseball was going to come back. Because at that point in time, Major League Baseball and the Players Association we're still going through some pretty contentious negotiations on if and when they were going to bring the game back. And so it was pretty apparent to me that the June 27th date wasn't going to happen. And that's when I came up with the idea of doing a virtual tip your cap to the Negro Leagues. And, and I called a couple of my good friends and they helped me coordinate this. And we went to work and a week, you know, we, in about a little over a week, we launched this campaign on June 29th, and we launched this campaign, as you mentioned, with four U.S. presidents tipping their cap. President Obama, Clinton, Bush, and Carter. You know, noteworthy dignitaries like General Colin Powell, transcending athletes, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Billie Jean King, uh, broadcasting legend Bob Costas, uh, talk show host Stephen Colbert, Conan O'Brien, the, the the late great Henry Aaron, uh, a host of current major leaguers got involved. But as I tell people all the time, man, when we went literally into outer space and got a tip of the cap from astronaut Chris Cassidy, who was aboard the International Space Station, I knew then that we had done something pretty doggone special. And, and this campaign literally went viral. And and the level of engagement around Negro Leagues and Negro Leagues and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum just skyrocketed. And while, you know, so much of our plans for the 100th anniversary had been derailed by the pandemic, we were able to salvage it. And from that point on, things just started to kind of, our fortunes reversed itself. You know, it was it went from doom and gloom to very much this resilient spirit that I think really is what the Negro Leagues is all about. And so as an institution, we had to embody that same spirit. And that's what we were able to do. And, you know, by the time the end of the year came around and, you know, we announced a U.S. Mint commemorative coin. And, and of course, in December, Major League Baseball announced that they were at long last recognizing the Negro Leagues for exactly what they were, a major league, and integrating the stats into the annals of Major League Baseball history. And so, the, like I said, the engagement level around the Negro Leagues is at an all-time high now. And more people are in tune to the work that we're doing in Kansas City to keep this history alive. 
to make sure that this history doesn't die when that last Negro leaguer leaves us. We cannot allow that to happen. It's too compelling. It's too inspirational. It's too meaningful to lose when that last Negro leaguer leaves the face of this earth. And that's that's what we're tasked with. We've been tasked with that from the day that we started this project in 1990, almost 31 years ago. And we knew then that it was a race against time from the standpoint that the people who made this history wasn't a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when they were all going to be gone. And, and that we needed to make sure that the legacy of the Negro League plays on. And that's what we fully committed ourselves to doing. Yeah, um, I recently read that you were possibly going to work with actor uh, Tay Diggs on creating a series of a TV show that could kind of pay homage to the Negro League. Anything in development with that? Well, you know, we're still talking. I've been pitching this idea for quite some time. I keep pitching, Ryan. And I figure if I keep pitching, somebody, <laughs> somebody's going to bite on this. And Tay is extremely interested. I had the opportunity to sit down in a, a classic conversation with him as he helped us commemorate the 101st anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues on February 13th. And we had a great conversation just talking about the history of the Negro Leagues and, you know, why it's so important. And the conversation at some point shifted to the fact that I certainly believe that there needs to be some cinematic portrayal of the Negro Leagues. Uh, and to me, a TV series is the best way. And he loved the idea. And, and so we're still hopeful that we can get, you know, make this happen. Because as I tell people all the time, man, you don't even have to fictionalize Negro Leagues to make it entertaining. Mm. You tell the real story, it's entertaining in his own right. In this case, truth is absolutely better than fiction. Yeah, you tell these stories and people go, man, you made that up. Uh-uh. It is the honest to God's truth. Yeah, I mean, just the stories that you mentioned on, on the show, you know, just with uh, Satchel and Josh, stuff like that. And I mean, it would go a long way. I think it would definitely be a hit success. Yeah, no, no, and, and I think uh, is it has everything. You know, you've got drama, you've got the great music scene of that era, you've got these characters who they're not unlike what you see today. They came from the same pool of population that the rest of us come from. They were just blessed with a gift to play this game, but they had they were out there trying to take care of their families. They had flaws. You, you know, so it's all there. You got everything that you need to create a very compelling, entertaining TV series is there. And, and I, I hope that it happens. Yeah, that would be, um, I think, a sight to see. I'm really hopeful that the it, it, it deal does get done and hopefully get this on um, to the mainstream uh, cinema. That would be very, very nice for the public to see. Now, Mr. Kendrick, there were also talks, I want to get, you know, your thoughts on this, that the late, great Penny Marshall was on tap to direct a film about Effa Manley. Um, yes. She was a great woman. You know, she directed um, A League of Their Own, and she was a great uh, actress. What was with that and exactly and what were your involvement with it? Well, uh, a good friend of mine wrote the screenplay, Byron Motley, who was the son of the late, great Negro Leagues umpire, Bob Motley. And Byron and Penny were very close, and Byron wrote the screenplay, and as you mentioned, Penny had announced that they were going to go in production and that she was going to direct 
this biopic on Effa Manley. Effa Manley uh, and her husband, Abe Manley, owned the Newark Eagles, but it was Mrs. Manley who ran the day-to-day operations of that baseball team. And she is an interesting character study. So it would have been a fascinating piece, but unfortunately, Penny never got around to doing it, and then she subsequently passed away. And, and I still hope the project's not dead. I hope that somebody will revive that script and that story, and maybe that'll be one of the stories that could come to the big screen because it's focused on a central character uh, and you're not trying to cover the entire spectrum of a 40-year history as you do you know, when you start to look at a, po- a potential of a Negro Leagues TV series. But Effa Manley was very complicated. And Effa Manley is the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so, yeah, her story would be, I think, very compelling and very interesting. Yeah, now... With that being said, what are your thoughts on baseball involving women in the sports? Recently, Bianca Smith was hired as the first black female baseball coach with the Boston Red Sox on January 21, uh, just passed. In November 2020, Kim Ning was hired as the general manager for the Miami Marlins. What are your thoughts as women being involved in the MLB? I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm happy. They're catching up with the Negro League. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was really happy to see uh, Miss Smith and uh, Miss Ning both get jobs. Um, I know um, Kim Ning has been extensively in front offices for the last, oh, yeah. you know, twenty years or so with Dodgers, White Sox, and she was at another yeah. ball club as well. And now she's she's prepared for this. And I think Bianca Smith is a, was a great player at Dartmouth, and she has a very rich history as well. And uh, hopefully yeah, they no, do no. succeed. Both of these ladies have earned their place in this game and I'm excited and very proud uh, of both of them and you know there are two people that I hope will eventually get to Kansas City uh, so that they can be included in this story that already has the likes of Tony Stone and Mamie Peanut Johnson and Connie Morgan, Effa Manley, Olivia Taylor, Minnie Forbes. You know these are pioneering women from the Negro Leagues who played who were executives in the Negro Leagues well before Major League Baseball was having this role with women. The Negro Leagues were out in front. And and so, yeah, it would be our honor to welcome them to the Negro Leagues, uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And, you know, I hope that this is just the beginning of creating opportunities, um, you know, as we look at making our sport more equitable, more inclusive. Yes, uh, I think it's instrumental and I think it's it's a part of you know the society of today you know it's it's a lot of sports or see a lot of women referees in the nfl uh, nba is hiring a lot of women head coaches so they're just keeping up with the world today and i think it's instrumental with with baseball trying to be you know as proactive as they can um now mr kendricks let's just play a little wordplay i'm just gonna give you five names and you just give me your first thoughts when you hear their name okay bullet rogers Oh man, Bullet Joe, Bullet Joe Rogan, uh, one of one of the greatest two way players ever. Mm-hmm. Bullet Rogan was an outstanding pitcher, but when he wasn't pitching, hmm, he played the outfield and would oftentimes hit cleanup. He led the Negro Leagues in stolen bases when he was thirty eight years old. Wow, that's amazing. That that's almost like Ricky Henderson. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, cool Papa, cool Papa Bell. 
greatest big name in baseball history by none. Mm-hmm. And one of the greatest base runners this sport has ever seen. I think you probably make a legitimate case that he was the greatest base runner. The blinding speed that everybody talks about. But Cool Papa Bell could run the bases. So he had this great speed, but he also had the ability to run the bases. Great instincts, great outfield. He didn't have a great arm, but because of the speed, he could play so shallow. And he had a very quick release. He hurt his arm as a pitcher, which actually may have been the greatest twist of fate ever because they moved him to the outfield where he could run down everything in the outfield. You know, just a an, an amazing player who was cool. Cool was literally cool. The name fit him to a T. Mm. Uh, Rube Foster. Genius. Mm. The greatest baseball mind this sport has ever seen. And, and people don't really know his brilliance. Rube Foster, Ryan, would have likely had Hall of Fame credentials as a player, as a manager, and as an executive. It's rare that you find someone who excels in every level of this game, and Rube Foster did, which is why I think that he may have had more impact on this game than anyone in the history of this game. Uh, Buck O'Neill. My mentor, my friend, my confidant. Mm. Uh, one of the most extraordinary human beings to ever walk the face of this earth who just happened to be a great baseball player. Most of us fell in love with Buck and we never saw him play. We fell in love with the Buck O'Neill who told us about the heroes of the Negro Leagues so beautifully and so vividly. But we also fell in love with the Buck O'Neill who demonstrated to all of us that you could indeed get further in this life with love than you could with hate. And that's what made him so special, the innateness that he had, the universal ability to love people irregardless. And and he was special. And I tell people all the time, they ask me what I remember most about Buck. And there were so many occasions that we were on the road, lunches and breakfasts and dinners and playing golf. But the thing that struck me most about Buck is that you always felt better leaving Buck than you did when you came to see him. And, and that's when you know you're with you're you're in the presence of somebody pretty special. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a good band. I mean, I've seen so many videos and, and interviews with him where he's just always smiling, happy. Yeah. yeah. Just, just love that 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 just the aura that he has. Um talk about Hank Aaron. Oh man, my as I mentioned, my all time favorite major league baseball player, my childhood idol. Uh, just an extraordinary ball player but just like Buck an even greater human being as I've said during a number of interviews that I've done since his untimely passing we can never reduce Henry Aaron's life to baseball baseball was a premise and he was able to use that premise to do some uh, extraordinary things Henry Aaron became a civil rights icon, a philanthropist, a humanitarian, an astute businessman, and someone who always was out front and trying to help improve the quality of life for people, particularly those who have been marginalized in this country uh, because of the color of their skin. And to me, that is what made Henry Aaron now, Henry Aaron so special. 
He just happened to be one of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. But uh, yeah, his his life is so much bigger than the game of baseball. And lastly, uh, Penny Marshall. Yeah, no, you know, I never got to meet Penny Marshall. And y'all, like most of us, we followed her career, enjoyed the work that she did. A League of Their Own is an epic film. But I feel some attachment to her uh, after she so generously left the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum her Negro Leagues collection. Didn't even know that Penny was a collector of Negro League memorabilia. And upon her death, or later, sometime after her death, her estate notified us that she had left us her collection. And what a tremendous honor. Wow. It really is. And so, really, Ryan, it didn't even matter to me what was in the collection. It was the fact that Penny Marshall thought enough of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to leave us her collection. And and hopefully that sends a a pretty powerful message to the world about how important the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum really is. And so, you know, we're very proud to have a piece of Penny Marshall, you know, now permanently uh, there at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And so even though I never got to meet her, uh, she holds a very special place in my heart. Yeah, she was a good woman. Uh, I never have the honor of meeting her either. I've seen her a lot at sit courtside, you know, at many games, and you know, enjoyed her show. And growing up, uh, she seemed like a very joyous, lovable woman. So I don't, I don't know if Jake, I don't think Jake knew that she had left us the collection either. And really? Yeah, I don't think so. You know, okay. and her daughter Tracy reached out to me via Facebook. Uh, to thank us for all the great things we were saying about her after she had left us the collection and said, no, you don't owe me any thanks. You know, we're thankful for what your mother had done for us. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, And and lastly, Mr. Kendrick, I know you're a big golf enthusiast and you you, (laughs) you love your basketball and you love your Braves. Uh, What are your predictions for this year's Major League season before we let you go? Are your Braves going to get the pennant this year? Well, you know, in my mind, the Braves are going to get there. I, you know, the, the Dodgers, the Dodgers are so good. They, they yeah. are so good, and they only got better. And, and you know, for me, I've, I've got friends throughout Major League Baseball. And, of course, I think my Royals are going to surprise some people. They're going to be okay. better than what people probably expect of them. The Braves have a, a, a really strong everyday lineup. They can make a runner if the pitching holds up you know when it when it's all said and done and we talk all about the home runs and everything that you know everybody loves all these home runs these guys here when it when it gets down to the nitty-gritty you gotta be able to pitch that ball and right. i'm not sure anybody can out pitch the dodgers that rotation yeah. is amazing actually the everyday lineup is obviously amazing as well uh but you know i'm, I'm still hopeful that my braves can find a way to, to kind of figure this thing out yeah, the Braves have a, you know, if they can get some guys that can take the next step. I know Max Breed had a really solid year for the oh. last year going undefeated. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the Dodgers, though, their rotation is scary with them getting Bauer. It's just, it's almost unfair, the rotation that they I have. I'm saying the rich has got richer, man. Yeah, yeah unbelievable. I thought for David sure he was going to the Mets. That, that surprised and, me. And they didn't have David Price last year. You right, know, that's the thing people out. forget. 
Yeah, yeah. Yes. And so now you add David Price in the mix. It's like, wow. <laughs> oh man, Mr. Kendricks, man, it's it's really been fun, man, and I I, I can't thank you enough. Um, please let our, our audience know exactly where they can follow and support the museum and yourself and all your work. Yeah, no, we encourage everyone to consider making a contribution in support of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to help us keep the le legacy of the Negro Leagues alive. You can do so. Log on to the World Wide Web at nlbm.com. You can follow the museum on Twitter at NLB Museum uh, and also on Instagram at that same name. And then you can follow me on Twitter at NLBM Prez, P R E Z, and also the same username on Instagram where we're constantly updating and sharing information about what's going on at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And, you know, and so we encourage everybody to consider supporting what we're doing.